unforgettable event occurred in the lives of three graduating seniors from Azusa Pacific University, a Christian school college in Southern California. A pastor and his wife had been invited to a special reception. The pastor would write about it a little later on. Uh, John Wallace, the university president, had invited three graduating seniors to attend this reception. These particular students had signed on to spend the following two years overseas in India, serving among the untouchables. The students assumed that they had been invited to the reception to be blessed and encouraged and prayed over, and they would be. But then something happened that they did not know was coming. Dr. Wallace, at some point in this reception, turned to them and said, I have some news for you. Uh, There's somebody you don't know, but they've appreciated your... um, plan to, to go to India for the next two years. And so they have given a gift to the school in your name and specifically on your behalf. Then he turned to the first graduating senior and said, on behalf of this donor, you are forgiven your $105,000 debt to this institution. That student immediately began to weep He turned to the second student and said, and you are forgiven your debt of $70,000 to this university. And to the third student, he said, and you are forgiven your debt of $130,000 to this university. The pastor writes that everyone in the room by now was weeping, especially these students who had no idea this was coming. The author writes, they were ambushed by grace blown away that someone they didn't even know would pay off their debt. I I like the way he wrote that. Ambushed by grace. That's the theme of our text today. Ambushed by the grace, the love, the kindness of God. Now, by the way, the only difference, of course, would be that we didn't sign up for two years in India to become the benefactors of his goodness, did we? We didn't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. But the truth remains, the more we learn about our redemption in Christ, the more we are blown away by his grace, the more dumbfounded we become by the goodness of God. Now, in our last few sessions, we have been expounding on these remarkable Christians living on the island of Crete, these descendants of pirates in the first century. We have also been exploring what it means to be a remarkable Christian in the 21st century. So let me invite you again to Titus in chapter 3, where Paul reveals that we, pirates and rebels at heart are we, are actually nothing more than the benefactors of a remarkable gift. We have been ambushed by goodness and grace. Let's pick it up where we left off at verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's one sentence. 
I'm convinced the Apostle Paul was always running out of ink and parchment. This is one long, uninterrupted sentence. And I want to deal with the entire sentence in our study today. Now let me remind you that it began with that little contrastive conjunction. We just briefly looked at it because we got through all of the the, the sewage of our depravity. And I wanted us to end with, with this thought. But let's go back there. This little contrastive conjunction, but, one of my favorite words in the English Bible because it changes everything. In fact, back up to the last part of verse 2. Remember this? For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but... In other words, in spite of everything that we were and struggle with today, something happened. It's that little word, but, that that tells us everything is about to change dramatically, remarkably. In fact, if you're listening to someone talk, you know that whatever they say after that little word matters quite a bit, doesn't it? I mean, how many applicants to a job have heard the company representatives say, well, you know, your resume really looks good and I like your experience, but how about a real estate agent who said, the buyer really likes your house, believes it's worth every penny you're asking, but How many of you guys have heard a girl say, I I like you and I think you're really nice and all, but none of you guys, I'm sure. Forget what came in front of that conjunction and really pay attention to what comes after. Charles Hughes served as Secretary of State in 1921 under President Harding and later as a justice on the Supreme Court benches. As Secretary of State, he once attended a Pan-American conference where he would have to depend entirely upon the translator because these men would be speaking in Spanish and Portuguese. He told his translator this, and I quote, listen, while a running translation is important to me, what I really want is for you to give me every word after the speaker says, but, because that will probably change everything. That's the idea here. We have nothing to offer God. Paul ran us through the list. Nothing but sin. But there's something that changes everything. And verse 4 opens with the fact that we happen to have a remarkable Redeemer. Would you notice? But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love appeared, He saved us. Now what Paul does is make special note of several key words. This word kindness is one of them. It's the only word, or it's a word only used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. It refers to the goodness of God, and it has the the feeling of generosity. He's kind, and, and he doesn't hold back. He's kind, and in his kindness, he is He's generous. Think of it in in terms of 
of generosity. So it's not a surprise that the very next noun would follow here in the text. Not only is the goodness of God remarkable and generous, but his love is overwhelming. He doesn't hold back. The kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind, the word for love, is a compound word combining philia, or love, and anthropos. We talk about anthropology, the study of man, and man. This is the love for mankind. Philanthropia is the Greek word. In fact, it gives us our transliterated word, philanthropy. Mankind has always been impressed by philanthropy, and we certainly ought to be. These are acts of, of, of generosity, of, of kindness toward mankind. I've got something that I could keep, but I'm going to give it away to somebody who might need it more. In fact, this idea of philanthropy was considered by the Greeks in Paul's day. It, it was one of those highly valued virtues. In fact, it was considered one of the highest virtues any person could ever demonstrate to anybody else. I could keep this, but I'm going to give it to you. They, they understood that that emanated from, from the character of, of a higher being. They called it the highest virtue of their gods. And so it is indeed a high virtue. Perhaps you've read in the news about the recent pact made by several billionaires to give away half of their fortune. I read that Bill Gates, I did a little research into this and certainly found it to be true. He's promised to give away half his fortune. He's going to give away some $30 billion. And with the remaining $30 billion, eke out an existence. I'm not sure how he'll be able to do that, but I'm sure he'll be able to. Well, frankly, I'm, I'm cynical, but I actually admire that. I think it's wonderful. He could keep that $30 billion and just give it to a slew of heirs. Whether he knows it or not, he's actually reflecting the virtue of God. God is the ultimate philanthropist. In fact, it's even deeper. Because the, the ultimate act of philanthropy is not just giving money away, but giving your life away, right? It's one thing to give somebody something. It's another thing to, to love somebody and give them your life. His kindness and his love appeared. The word epiphany. It's a reference to the incarnation. He, he, he loved us and he appeared. He came to give his life. That's how generous he was with this ultimate act of philanthropy. John Phillips writes about an incident in his commentary through Ephesians when he visited a friend of his. This man's daughter was... An alcoholic, and Phillips writes, I was visiting in his home one day when she was delivered to the door. She had drunk almost an entire bottle of whiskey. Her temper was flaming and abusive. Her face was flushed. Her manner belligerent. Her actions violent. I, I happened to look up at the picture of the young, unspoiled girl that still hung on the wall of this man's home, and I pitied the poor girl, with all my heart for the terrible shipwreck she'd made of her life and for her slavery to such a cruel and relentless tyrant. Yet I watched as her father took her gently by the arm, ignoring her abusive language. He steered her unsteady footsteps outside to his car. 
He carefully settled her in, his face drawn and his eyes filled with pain. He patiently strapped her into the seatbelt and then drove her home and put her into bed. John Phillips wrote, I pitied her. He loved her. Multiply that young woman's slavery and wretchedness and abusiveness by 10,000 and the love of that father by infinity. And you have the generous kindness and love of our Redeemer who did not just pity us from galaxies away. He appeared. He came and he pitched his tent in the sewer right alongside us so that he could die giving us the ultimate gift of philanthropy to atone for our sin past, present, and future. He ambushed us by his goodness and grace. We happen to have a remarkable redeemer. Amen? Secondly, we have been given a remarkable redemption. I mean, listen, how do you ever pay your way out of the sewer? How are you ever going to come up with enough to buy yourself out of the the slave market of sin and the dominion of, of darkness? Well, Paul clarifies for us the answer in the next phrase. Notice verse 5 as he writes, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. In the original New Testament uh, language, the words not on the basis of deeds appears first in the sentence to show the emphasis of his statement. Literally, not from works, He saved us, which means genuine, true, biblical salvation is not only freely given, but then it would lead us to reflect back to him gratitude, for he alone has given it. We had nothing to offer, not from our works of righteousness. That is not the best thing you've ever done. No, none of that. You see, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should what? Boast. Why say that? Because that's exactly what we would do, lest any of us should boast. If we could sew one stitch of righteousness into our garments of splendor, which we will one day wear, we would spend all of eternity admiring that one stitch. Beautiful robe, huh? Look at that. (laughs) See this? I, I did that. Think about the gospel in its biblical sense, and discard the empty religion of fig leaves that you try to sew together to make yourself presentable. Think about what you do with your young children. Some of you are right in the middle of it. Some of you can just sit there and smile because you're past it. But you remember how it was. The day comes to an end and you say, okay, kids, you know, it's time to clean up the playroom. 
get all your toys and bring them over here and put them in the toy box. No, don't throw them from that side of the room. Bring them all the way over here and put them carefully in here and go pick up all the Cheerios you stacked up there in the foyer and, and uh, you get all the Legos off the stairway as you built you know, some, some monument of, of ingenuity and take your tricycle off the piano bench. And I don't know, those memories are still there. But you know, let's go, kids. You know, you know they're not going to be able to get it done perfectly, but you want them to make the effort. And you know full well that when you finally tuck them into bed, you're going to go back through the house and take care of everything they didn't do. A lot of people think that's how salvation works. That God says, look, you do, I want to see you make an effort here. You give it your best shot And since I know you can't do it perfectly, whatever you leave undone, I'll take care of. It's not the gospel. Paul writes, apart from works, he saved us. The reason you put your toys away is not so you'll be saved, but because you have been and you want to present a kind of testimony of gratitude that would cause others to look at your Lord and take note. See, remarkable Christianity, which happens to be the genuine item, delivers the truth of this remarkable redemption. It's paid in full by Jesus Christ himself with no help from us. No help from us. In fact, Paul adds at the end of this phrase, it's like he wants to make sure we have no loophole around this thing. He adds, according to his mercy. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, the best things we could do, but according to his mercy. Paul writes the same progression to the Ephesian church. He says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, there it is again, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved that's how he saved us you can't get any clearer than that there's no scale in heaven and the and hopefully the good will outweigh the bad and God will say well I'll just take care of the things you couldn't do I see everything you've done come on in I can't begin to tell you how thrilling it is to clarify the gospel, certainly from this pulpit, but in individual meetings. And just this past week to meet with a couple in their mid to late 60s and attending our greenhouse class have been coming since this past Christmas suite. He said to me as we met in my office, he said, you know, I wasn't raised in a church that talked about the gospel and, and certainly never used the word saved. He said, but I hear that a lot around here. And uh, he said, it's piqued my interest. He said, I've been going back through the New Testament. And he says, I'm seeing that word saved all over the place. I explained to him what the word meant and the gospel, how Christ alone would redeem us. We had to be saved from outside ourselves, like a man drowning in the ocean. He has to have somebody swim out to him and save him because he can't save himself. And He bowed his head and prayed in his own words, Lord Jesus, I am asking you right now to save me. 68 years old. 
dear flock, Christianity does not give any of us room to gloat. But God has given us all of eternity to be grateful. We have been ambushed by goodness and grace. We have a remarkable Redeemer. Secondly, we have been given a remarkable redemption. Thirdly, we are under a remarkable reconstruction. Notice the middle part of verse 5. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, and he continues on. Let's stop here and just unpack that particular part of his sentence. By the washing of regeneration. There are those who would say that the ordinance of baptism saves. Or it's sort of like the last thing. You're not really saved until you do that. They've spilled a lot of ink over the fact that you can't become a Christian until you've been baptized. That our sister Aaron was not completely saved. It wasn't really fully ratified until she was, as my son said, dunked under the water. Well, all you have to do is read the phrase and notice the agent doing the baptizing. Would you notice that? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the college pastor. Oh, wait. Maybe it ought to say the senior pastor. No, not even close. Who's doing the action? Who's doing the baptizing? The Holy Spirit. He's the agent. Which means this is a reference to an internal spiritual cleansing of the heart pictured externally after the fact by water, water baptism. In fact, I'll take for a moment the argument of those who believe in baptismal regeneration, that is that you've got to be baptized to be saved. And I'll take one portion of their argument, which I agree with, that in the mind of the apostles and in the early church, there was no such thing as a non-baptized believer. One followed the other. I mean, they couldn't even conceive of such a thing. Why would anybody follow Jesus Christ and not want to identify through the ordinance he instituted, which pictures identification with his death, burial, and resurrection? Somebody says, well, you know, I get nervous in front of people. I understand that. I don't like public speaking. I understand that. I don't want to be seen, you know, with my hair all wet, you know, by a thousand people. Okay, I understand that. What if if water gets up my, you know, my nose or or something? What if they forget to bring me back up? (laughs) It's never happened. We've been tempted. In fact, Aaron's mother came up to me and she said, you realize what's about to happen here? And I said, I know, because my son and Aaron grew up through elementary school and middle school and he tormented her. (laughs) They did not like each other at all. And now she's his assistant, which God has a great sense of humor. She said to me, though, he is going to bring her back up, isn't he? I said, I think so. Listen, the physical demonstration of of washing, which illustrates the internal act of cleansing, is wonderful. But let's not back the physical into the spiritual and redefine regeneration. Because if we do, we have added something we do for God in order to be saved. 
And we were just told it isn't anything we could do, not the best thing we could do. Saves us. In fact, if you have to be baptized in order to be saved, you're actually going to have to depend on somebody to baptize you, which means now you're depending on another human being. What if he doesn't show up? The word Paul uses here for washing is not baptizo, baptism, which means to immerse, but lutron. It's a reference to a bath, a spiritual internal bath, and we use it for an external bath, the kind you take on Saturday night, whether you need it or not, right? That's how vile we are. We don't need a little washing. We don't need them to take our heart and just maybe spot clean here and there. We need the entire thing entirely cleansed, bathed. That's how vile and sinful we are. The Holy Spirit gave us the whole bath. That's what he means. I remember when my son and his twin brother were about four years of age, we used to live in a house that had a real wood-burning fireplace and stone fireplace and uh, out back behind the house, about uh, two feet from the ground, the back of uh, the chimney was a little iron door, about that big, and you could open that and you could shovel the ashes out rather conveniently. It was now summertime and I hadn't cleaned it out from the winter. Well, our twin sons found that little gate. And what do you think they did? They considered it an open door from God. That's what they did. They threw ash into the air. They threw it all over each other. They covered each other with the ashes. And my wife said, honey, would you go ahead and call the boys for supper? And I said, sure. I stepped out on the deck. And I saw aliens from outer space. (laughs) Big eyes looking up at me, you know, under layers of (laughs) ash. They were covered from head to toe. And I went back and I called my wife and said, Marcia, you got to come out. You got to come out. I wanted her to see the kids doing something I had not put them up to. And that was important. (laughs) She walked out and she said, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? I was thinking of giving them away, but she wouldn't go for that, I'm sure. I said, let me take care of it. I went and got the garden hose, and uh, I literally hosed them down. Had them take off their clothes all the way down to their Batman underwear, and uh, I mean, it was it just just soaked them good. Uh, they thought it was great, by the way. Man, is this a good day or what? <laughs> but I wasn't about to let them in the house, nor would their mother, until they were perfectly clean. I soaked them good. The idea here, the other, in fact, the only other time this word washing appears in the New Testament, the only other time is by the Apostle Paul when he refers to the bathing of the water of the Word. See, we don't need the Bible to just spot clean us. We, we need a, a, a total reconstruction. And this is the spiritual truth of a deep cleansing. And the Holy Spirit is the agent who is effectively, by means of the truth of the Word, hosing us down. Now, there are three other words I want to point out quickly that are important to his argument here as he refers to the genuine item 
the word regeneration, the word renewing or renewal, and the word justified or justification. Regeneration, renewal, justification. Let me talk for a moment about regeneration. It literally means to have another birth. From this we get the idea of what Jesus Christ was saying in John 3 when he said, you must be what? Born again. The word is a compound word, palin, for again, and genesis. Genesis. The book of Genesis simply means the book of beginnings. It means beginning. Beginning again. Another beginning. Paul is referring here to a brand new birth, a new beginning. You see, you've had one birth that was physical. Paul says you need now by means of the Holy Spirit to experience a second birth, which is spiritual. That transaction where you understand the gospel and say, Lord, I want you to save me, is the moment of that new birth, that genesis in your life. And so to get into heaven, you're born twice, aren't you? Life has invaded you either at conception, which I believe is the beginning of life, or at spiritual conception by means of the Spirit of God. No wonder Satan then has counterfeited this idea going all the way back into the Old Testament days. He counterfeited the idea of animal sacrifice and atonement and, and the meaning of good works. And he's, he's, he, he's counterfeited the idea of spiritual death and spiritual resurrection long before Paul delivered the fuller and final declaration of the gospel that all the Old Testament looked forward to and we look backward to, that is the sufficient act of Christ on the cross for our redemption. But the heart of man, energized by the deceiver who's blinded their minds, gives them nuggets, kernels of truth. Just study the mystery religions and you'll see them. For instance, one mystery religion required their followers to go through a ceremony where they dug a pit to represent a symbolic grave. And over the pit, they placed beams in lattice-type fashion. They, they put the, the novice there in the pit, and then they killed a bull, collected the blood, and they dripped the blood through the lattice down onto the head of this individual. And then after they were finished, they moved the lattice away, and they brought the the person up. He came up out of, as it were, the grave, and they considered him newly born, resurrected, and they even gave him a glass of milk to signify that he was now a babe. Sound familiar? The Stoics would use the word regeneration to refer to the planet They believe that the planet every 3,000 years would be completely burned. The Mayans weren't the first to come up with the idea of the prediction of the end of the world. All of these these mystery religions and cults illustrated there's going to be some kind of new birth, a new birth of the planet, a new birth of people, or whatever. And and, and they illustrate to me what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.7. They are constantly learning. They're, they're, They're circling they're, 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 they're gathering kernels of truth, but they are never able, they are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They don't get the full picture. 
God alone created the heavens and the earth. God alone brings about the new Genesis in your life as he will the new earth and the new heaven. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Listen, regeneration is not turning over a new leaf. It is the birth of a new life. By means of the Holy Spirit to all who come by faith to Christ alone. Now, Paul refers to another key word here. He uses one and I want to focus on this. It's the word renewal. He says, we also are renewed, verse 5, by the Holy Spirit. Not only is there regeneration, there is renewal. Here's the difference. Regeneration or rebirth is a moment in time. Renewal is a lifetime. Regeneration is like a once-in-a-lifetime bath. Renewal is like a daily shower. Paul writes to the Corinthians, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Paul uses this same word again in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he writes, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let it press you into its mold. And it's going to do it every day. It's going to try. Instead, be transformed by the, here it is, renewing of your mind. That is, your mind surrenders to the truth of the Word. It's it's under reconstruction, so to speak. Justification is the third word I'll point out. Another key word. Notice the end of verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, stop there, we're regenerated, renewed, and and justified. And by the way, I want to get on just a brief rabbit trail here to tell you that this one sentence from the Apostle Paul gives us a wonderful text on the Trinity. If anyone asks you for a text revealing the activity of the Trinity, here's a great one. You have God our Savior, note verse 4. Then you have the Holy Spirit, verse 5. And now, verse 6, you have Jesus Christ. And you also happen to have a wonderful text on the equality of the Son with the Father, equally divine. Paul refers to God as our Savior, God the Father, verse 4. And then he refers to Jesus Christ as our Savior, verse 6. If God the Father is our Savior, or is it Jesus Christ our Savior? While you're at it, we're told the agent involved in the act of regeneration is the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit then our Savior? What's the answer? The answer to all three is yes. Yes. Salvation is the perfect work of cooperation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now back to the idea of justification. It's that part of the transaction of our new birth where God the judge declares us righteous. Because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to our account. It isn't infused over time, Roman Catholic theology. It is imputed at once. The account of Jesus Christ is fully sufficient in his once-for-all sacrifice 
to pay for the record of sins we've committed against him. It's as if then in this word, which is a legal word, that God the Father is a judge. He's got his gown on, gavel in his hand. He sees all of the evidence of our sin presented to him. He brings his gavel down and suddenly there's no more record of any sin to our account. It's more than just simply being freed. It's having your penalty erased from your biography. There's no record of it. Your record, in fact, is spotless. Let me illustrate it this way. Several years ago, I was driving on the speedway, uh, I mean the freeway, in another city. I was going six miles an hour faster than I thought I was. I was driving a borrowed vehicle. The wheels were larger than the original factory wheels, and the calibration was off. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I actually, actually did have it calibrated because I was mystifying, and, and, and truly enough, it was six miles over. But the point is, instead of going 70 miles an hour, I was going 76 miles an hour, which is really bad because I just entered a township where the speed limit dropped from 65 to 55. And I know you're thinking, well, what were you doing doing 70? Well, that's, that's not part of my illustration, so quit interrupting me, okay? <laughs> Obviously, I was in trouble. In fact, I was pulled over going 21 miles over the speed limit. So I decided to go back to court and pay the fine, hopefully keep my insurance from skyrocketing, and I stood in line at the, the courtroom in this little town. It was interesting. It was, just, it was a classroom, and, and uh, the judge's bench was a folding table, and he had stacks of files sitting in front of him and an assistant, and he wasn't wearing a robe or anything, and, but he was the judge, and so I stood in line there with all, all the other uh, race car drivers who'd, who'd shown up, and, and um, he eventually called my name, asked me if I was indeed driving that fast, and I hadn't had it calibrated yet, and I said the right thing anyway, yes, sir. He said, well, he just scribbled something. didn't say anything to me, just writing. And then he looked up to me, and he said, I- I'm going to do you a big favor. I said, well, thank you, sir. Didn't know what he meant. And, and I, I would learn later it was a, a prayer for judgment and, and it would keep it off my, my record after I paid the, the fine. So he, he was writing something, he handed it to me and he said, I'm, I am, I'm doing you a big favor. I hadn't said a word other than again said, thank you, sir. I got the paper and, and walked to the edge of the classroom, opened the door and was about to walk out and he hollered after me. I am doing you a big favor. Let me tell you something. Doing me a big favor was a wonderful thing, but doing me a big favor and declaring me righteous are two different things. Don't get in your mind, God's going to do me a big favor. He's just going to, yeah, there's probably some kind of loophole, prayer for judgment or whatever. You can do that once every seven years. I've, I've exceeded my limit, and I know that for sure. That's why I can tell you that. But that's not what God does. See, in order for the judge to actually justify me, he would have said, you've committed a crime. Yes, sir. I'm going to take this police report, and I'm going to erase your name, and I'm going to write my name in your place. Then I'll pay the fine, and I'll add the penalty to my record, and I'll pay the insurance, and you can have my spotless driving record because I've never broken the law. That's how Paul defines this doctrinal concept. 
In fact, he, he wrote it to the Colossians this way. Listen, when you were dead in your transgressions, I like the way he says that. Think of it this way. You're dead. You're dead. You're in deep trouble. He, God the judge, made you alive together with him, having, note this, forgiven us all our transgressions. We got that. He goes on. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, that is your criminal history, and he has taken it out of the way. How? Having nailed it to the cross. In other words, God switched the names on the rap sheet. Christ's name was written on top of the volume of all your sins and mine. Jesus Christ becomes the condemned criminal. He pays the eternal fine being eternal son. And he attributes to us his perfect record, writes our name on top of that because he never broke the law. That is justification. He took our vileness and gave us his virtue. He took our perversion and attributed to us his purity. He took our record of sin and gave us his record of sinlessness. We have been ambushed by the grace of God. And that's not all. Paul has one more thing to say. The very end, not only do we happen to have a remarkable redeemer, a remarkable redemption, we're under a remarkable reconstruction. Fourthly, he tells us we've been promised a remarkable reward. Paul writes here in verse 7, so that being justified, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And if you're an older believer, you're going, yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that. Wait a second. We have been made royal heirs. This heiress tense indicates it's ours in full now, bestowed upon us when we were saved, but yet we will fully experience it one day. So right now, you might be walking around the earth feeling like a peasant. You're a king. You're a queen. You have been made an heir already. It's yours. It'll just be given to you in the coming kingdom. So think of it this way. We are not only citizens of the coming kingdom of God. We are co-owners. of more than we can imagine. I close with this. The poet wrote, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld your love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. 
Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. One more note. When we get there, the more I study the word, I'm under the impression that we're going to spend the first few years just saying to each other, can you, can you believe it? <laughs> well, we're here. Can you believe it? I know you preached through Titus. I was sleeping halfway through it anyway. But I, can, you, can you believe it? You, you were telling the truth all the time. We're here. We're going to pinch ourselves. It's going to be like we didn't see it coming. Not like it is. Not like it is. Okay, people are calling to say, where are you? It's time to leave. God bless you. You are dismissed. <laughs> 